What's up, folks? Let me tell you something. Things have just gotten crazy, just crazy in Baltimore soccer world. It is insane. I am I'm losing my mind. We are here in Quarantineville, wasting away. We are safe from the gunfire of West Baltimore. We are not in the basement of a bank, and we no longer have a development academy. We are off the crossbar. Miz, tell me what is going on, brother? It's a big day, man. It's a big day. Uh, the U.S. Youth Development Academy is absolutely finito. Um, yeah. What? Uh, but, you know, on the contrary, five minutes later, the MLS Academy is born today. Uh, or it was actually yesterday. But, yeah, I mean, um, we'll see what happens. There's a lot of details to work out. There's a lot of kids and families involved that you, you feel bad for. They, they were awful for that. Yeah, so uh, hopefully things shake out and everybody, you know, gets a new home and, and we'll go from there. But just another circus from U.S. soccer as a whole. It's disappointing, um, and I, I'm almost speechless. Well, look, let's look at their track record, all right? So, I might failed, cry. To, failed to qualify for the World Cup, right? Yep. Failed to qualify for the Olympics, correct? Yep. Was that twice? Might be twice. I think so, yeah. Twice failed for the Olympics. Uh, then our under twenty threes. Eh. Yeah. Was it the nineteens uh, or the twenty threes that we watched in, in the uh, Youth World Cup, and they just got they they were just pathetic. I think that was the twenty threes, but the nineteens had a couple good games here and there. But again, though, just I mean, and to be fair, I mean, even you know since. What was it, 2002 when the, the U.S. made the quarterfinal in the World Cup? Uh, since then, even if we did get in, I mean, it was basically, you know, we were an easy out, not really competitive. It's just been it's been Okay. Well, we've had this development academy that's supposed to be developing the next wave of talent. And what has developed? Uh, it's a great question. I, nothing that I know of outside of a few guys you would figure – you know, with all the players in, in the academy and all the development that's going on, by now we would have, like, at least – Development! Yeah, a pool of, like, 30 guys who would be maybe not as good as the best from Brazil or the best from, you know, the European countries, but certainly 30 guys that would be able to compete and get, you know, a result here or there, and it's just not happening. And it's, it's, it's just disappointment. And I'm going to tell you the thing that pisses me off. What's that? Somebody's going to say, Christian Pulisic. And, yes, that is true. Christian Pulisic is one of the best players in the world, in my opinion. And you just one said the, the operative word in that whole sentence. He's one. He's one. But he got better playing in Europe. Yeah, yeah, he played for PA Classics. I think he might have played for somebody else in the DA. But it's like Red but Bull. Or, it was a yeah. short window. It wasn't like they picked him up and found him and, and fostered him. That kid got better playing in Europe. But through all that, that one, that one player that they named, okay, we'll give you that. Look at the amount of money people paid into the Development Academy. And this is the part that pisses me off for that one person. Look how many people got paid. That, there are people making big freaking bucks right. at the and Development Academy. And, you know, another big part of that is all over the country, it may not be the case. There are some states where it is the case, but we have some of the best high school soccer in this area, like yeah. that, that's comparable throughout the country. And so 
you had a lot of kids who, you know, trying to get to their end goal, who had to make tough decisions and forego high school soccer, you know, because that was the rules line outlined by the development Academy and put a lot of people in bad positions and not that, you know, high school soccer is, is going to save you. It's going to make you whatever it is. It's not going to get you to where you want to go as far as like recruitment Maybe. level, but Maybe. you still, you, you lost out on that opportunity and you lost out on the, the chance to make that decision for yourself because you couldn't even make that decision before it was made for you. It was made for you. And that's, that drives me up a wall. I, I, in, in theory, the development Academy is brilliant in practice. It was a resounding failure. And what hurts the most, what hurts the most is that they didn't fix it. They just let it fail and said, yeah, MLS, you take it. Absolutely. And again, I mean, it just, it's, it's like I say, it's another part of the U.S. soccer circus. It really is. I mean, uh, they, they can't get the men's team right. You know, they just basically, you know, encouraged and persuaded these girls teams, you know, to come in from what was it, three years ago. Right. And now they've, they, they redirected, made the adjustments, came into the league, and now the league's full. I mean, it, it's just laughable. It just is. And I, and I, I don't know, you know, they're, they're kind of playing a little close to the vest right now as to whether it was money was the driving issue, whether there was another issue. But I've also heard that it was because the boys' academy had so much funding and the girls didn't have as much. And, and so they scrapped the whole thing. Just fix it. But, yeah, but that was exactly. your chance and you blew it. You blew it. And, you know, another sad part of it is that the, 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 in the actual press release, it basically outlines that some of the blame is contributed to the pandemic. It's like, come on, brother. You yeah. Know, I mean, you, you I had know, developed man. one player, one notable <laughs> player on the men's side because of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah it's the pandemic. So it's going to juggle the landscape for sure. I mean, and locally, you know, we have a development academy and the armor and, and there's going to be some, some shake up there. Now, whether they go into the new MLS league, yeah. they'll have to wait and see. But um, it's, again, it's just the sad state of affairs for all the people involved in it. Um, and, you know. I, I tell you I, what, if I were a kid, if I were a kid that gave up my senior year of high school playing for my school uh, especially if it was a private school like a Curly or Calvert Hall or McDonough where they get all those fans. Uh, I, if I gave that up for a league that doesn't exist when I uh, going into my last year, I'd be pissed. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, I hate to say you don't want to have any regrets, but you know, at the, to be fair at that time, they were just making decisions based on the information they had and nobody kind they of made that decision. Coming, but- I, I hear you, but it, I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt, but that you just – they had to make that decision because there had to be a decision made. Sure. And, and U.S. soccer shouldn't have put them in that spot to begin with. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know um, – and, and, again, we'll see what happens. Um, I've always been a guy that, that sided with the, the mentality of, you know, and, and the idea that, we have the best football players. We have the best basketball players. They can all play high school. You know what I mean? It's not about that. It's, it's the other things that you're doing. It's the yeah. unorganized stuff. And it's the way you, you know, you, you, you structure the things that you do and the mandates and the geography and everything else that has to do with, with our system and how it's flawed. And um, hopefully I it got fixed. it. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Well, Ms. 
We got to get a question of the day in. There it yeah, is, the logo, the mystery question of the day. What's What you got cooking for well, me? This is, by the way, it's not just the mystery question of the day. It's the ideal health chiropractic mystery question of the day. It is. Go ahead, Miz. I'm telling you, all this uh, sitting around, I'm going to need some serious adjustments, right? Uh, Dr. Adam Maddox is going to come the in. Man. And, I mean, you could be in some bad shape, but the piriformis could flare up, you know? Like a, it's like having a grapefruit on your, on your <laughs> ass cheek. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I'm missing sports, Coach. And I'm not only missing the competition, you know, the, 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 um, the joy of victory. What is it? The, uh, yeah, thrill the joy, of victory. The thrill of victory. And, and the, the agony, agony of, defeat, of defeat. Right? But there's also the other things I'm missing, like the mascots, right? Right. Mystery question of the day. What's the best? Sports mascot of all time. The best of all time. And only if you truly believe it can you be a real homer and say the Oriole bird. I mean, but if you really believe that, that that's fine. I'm going to say the San Diego chicken. Okay. The San Diego chicken was re- revolutionized mascottery. I'm telling you, the San Diego chicken was like – did to mascots what the Beatles did to rock and roll. I mean, there would not be a Poe right now if the San Diego chicken didn't break <laughs> through that barrier. Before the San Diego chicken, there was no dancing. There was no grabbing fans and shaking them. There was no tomfoolery. The Philadelphia Philly thing, whatever that thing is, would have been homeless. Fanatic, I think Philly yeah, fanatic, the Philly yeah. fanatic would have been homeless had it not been for the hard work and the sacrifice of the San Diego chicken. Now explain to folks who may not know, who is the chicken? Well, first of all, here's a picture of the chicken right there. Look at the size of those talons. <laughs> he clawed his way to the top. They say chickens can't fly, but that thing – flew above the oppression of mascots in his day. So he's clearly your favorite. Clearly my favorite. I'll, I'll, here's a little highlight of the San Diego chicken. But, I mean, like, look at those moves. Look at that energy. All, I mean, you can tell yeah. he was cooped up too long. Boom, right there. A, whatever he's getting paid, definitely underpaid, right? Definitely underpaid. San Diego chicken, and a great actor. Oh, no doubt, yeah. Very so talented. does that help you with your with the mystery question? It of the does, day? but I, it's a two-parter. So the second oh. part, yeah, the second part would be what's your favorite local mascot? Favorite local I mean, it's a, mascot. It's probably a tough toss-up between the Oriole Bird or Poe or you know. I'm gonna no? go Poe. Yeah? I am okay. gonna go Poe, and here's why. Last year, I watched Poe go section to section with the fat guy. <laughs> That takes off his shirt at the Ravens game, does R-A-V. The Poe was right there with him step for step. Oh, and if, okay. you can, if you can hang out with that guy, you're all right with me. The and Oriole Bird. doing it in a suit, right? Yeah. Right. The Oriole Bird used to do that with Wild Bill Hagee back in the day, but, but they would do it on top of the dugout. He didn't have to travel. Right. Poe put in his time, man. Poe put in his work that day. All right. So if like you remember, that, yeah. 1996, the Ravens had three mascots, Edgar, Allen, and Poe. Well, Poe apparently, like, offed the other two mascots. So survival of the fittest, he is my favorite. Okay, I like that. I mean, the level of difficulty plays into how much they, they rank in your, in your system, right? I like that. Absolutely. And before we go, 
I want to also tell you this. Any school out there, any school, hire me. I would be a fantastic <laughs> mascot, an unbelievable mascot. I got breakdancing skills. I got dance moves. I can high kick. I can do karate in a, in a mascot suit. Call me. I feel like you would make a great uh, – the, the Portland Timbers guy. What's it, Timber Joey or whatever, when they score, oh, he's got the great. chainsaw. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. be good. I'm not handy. I'd cut off a no. finger. Okay. I'd lose a finger. I'd lose a digit, a wrist, something like that. What if they threw in hazard pay? Maybe? I, you don't want me near that chainsaw. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for answering the mystery question of the day, right? Uh, brought to you by Ideal Health Chiropractic. Get your back fixed. What do right. we got on the show today, Coach? We got a great show lined up. Oh, my gosh. We got one of the best coaches of, yeah. the, of the crew, uh, Coach Barry Stitz from Archbishop Curley. He won a national championship, maybe two, at Celtic. He also back coaches back, at Baltimore yeah. Union. Yeah, yeah started, started Fuster Soccer, which a little local club that did great things. So uh, also, as a player, tremendous. He's going to talk to us a little bit about that. We are off the crossbar, and we will be back. Hey, everybody. Pete Eibner here for Grip Strings. I'm telling you, these shoestrings revolutionize soccer. If you look, they have, I don't even know what it's called, I'm gonna call it fine Corinthian rubber, right there, which adheres to the other string. Your shoelaces never come untied unless you want them to. So when you're watching youth soccer and you see kids running down the field and their shoelaces are coming untied and they gotta come out to get subbed, eliminates that problem. Plus, as a player, it's nice to have my shoes never loosen up while I'm in the middle of a game, and then I don't have to worry about it. I'm telling you, grip strings, revolutionizing the way this is done. Welcome back to Off the Crossbar. Miz, I am fired up. So am I. You know, we're, we're stirring the sauce today. We've put it all together. We've made the soccer jambalaya that is ready, ready to get to market. It is unbelievable. But now we have one thing we need to do. What's that? We need to stir it up. And we are going to now put in the spoon that stirs the jambalaya. Okay. Our guest coming in right now, one of the best players in Baltimore history. I'm telling you, this guy, uh, one of the best players ever come out of Archbishop Curley. He's, uh, he's in the Towson Soccer Hall of Fame for Towson University. He's in the Maryland Soccer Hall of Fame. He's in, believe it or not, the Dundalk Soccer Hall of Fame. He's the last number number 21 in your program, but he's number one in your hearts. He is a national championship coach with Baltimore Celtic. He started Fuster Soccer Club. He's done it all. He's the head coach at Archbishop Curley. Give it up for Barry Stitz. There he is. Wow, what an entrance. How about that? We, hey, we need a shovel. To somebody else at first. <laughs> we need a <laughs> shovel to stir that, though, the, the concoction. We need a shovel to stir it, right? Big, a lot of, lot of stuff in the resume. Here we go. He sent over his resume. It's like the sequel to War and Peace. <laughs> <laughs> page 614, right? Do you know what's on page 614 of his resume? What's that? He was on the Channel 13 Live commercial for the news. He was sliding into home plate on Randy Rizet. Ah, okay. 
I was actually in Texas. <laughs> was, now, well, now, be honest. What, what, was that a greater television moment than the Baltimore Spirit commercial where you bust in the house with the head balls and breaking well, the, the mantle? Story, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the Channel 13 commercial, you could see me for like 0.8 seconds. And okay. then for the Blast or the Baltimore Spirit commercial, it was 0.3 seconds. Okay. So, <laughs> I would say the uh, Channel 13 uh, commercial was better. Takes the cake, huh? <laughs> it was. It was a classic. It was a classic. I'll see if I can dig that up. It's on the. Uh, it's on YouTube somewhere. I'll find it. We. This will come out. Miss Morgan, get on the job. Find me that video. Dig it up. Try this at home. So, Bear, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you. Uh, I hope you're doing well. Hope your family's safe. Um, you are catching us in a whirlwind day of soccer. What's going on in your world before we start grilling you? Um, you know, I'm still getting into work uh, most days uh, for, uh, I guess, a partial work day. Uh, you know, one positive, I guess, that's come about this stuff is uh, it slowed the schedule down. Uh, we're not running to tournaments and practices and games and parties and things like that. So it's been a little bit more family time. We're eating dinner together. Um, I'm, I guess, one of the lucky few. I got a, a nice big field out back of my house with goals and nice surface. So I've been uh, out there working. My, my three sons, I got three boys that uh, all play and uh, been working them out. So it's, uh, you know, the, that's the one thing that's come about this thing that you get a little bit closer with your family again so i'm trying to keep busy I'm, I'm ready to go and get back out on the field and coach though i can tell you that yeah for sure for sure well before we talk about like your coaching career and all that um i just wanted to ask you because it's pretty interesting for guys who have the, the the player background that you have but like what is one of your favorite memory takeaways from being a player at the level that you reached you know what? It, it, it's it's all the time just hanging out with the guys. You know, it's not a particular uh, goal I scored or or a, ch a championship necessarily won. It's just that camaraderie with the guys. And you'll see actually during a time like we're going through right now, you know, that's what you find missing the most, especially as a coach. You know, you've got parents on the teams and things like that who, you know, they suddenly become your friends as they coach their kids. So um, that's probably what I miss the most. Did you uh, – so so – your playing career, I mean, my gosh, you, you were probably always on the top, it seems like. You, you started off at Little Flower, went to Curly, then you went to Towson for their glory years, then you went on to the Blast. And were you always shooting for that as a goal? As a kid, I was fortunate enough that, you know, the Blast, and it was in the early 80s, uh, became really popular. And, uh, you know, as a kid, that was, you know, going down there to the games and, most of the time, you missed half the game because you're out in the hallway playing with the little orange and black uh, blast ball. Right. Getting chased by the the uh, the guy out there, the the usher. Um, but you know, you had those guys to look up to. Um, I was fortunate. This was when you know I was a young kid. It was before all the club ball and stuff. But you know, Shrine Wolf Flower was a big booming athletic association. You know, we had two or three teams in every age group, and um, 
you know, had some decent coaching, but even if the, the, the coach didn't have a great uh, soccer background, they were good people. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to, to have pretty good athletes that grew up in my neighborhood and Will Fire was a big school. And um, just that neighborhood in general, you had a lot of athletes. And, and, yeah, and so yeah. I was playing all three seasons and, uh, you know, we had some pretty good teams. Speaking of the hallway soccer, let's go back to that for a minute. It's, it's important, right? It's important in, 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 in our childhood. So, and I'm sure you guys experienced the same thing. So, in the group of guys that will play in the hallway during the blast games, you always found one guy that, you know, everybody puts in their dollar, five dollars, whatever it is, and they would go up to the stand and get the goalie gloves. Remember the goalie gloves? They were <laughs> the poly with the little pads just sewn on there. Horrible, right? Yeah. So, who is the guy always getting the goalie gloves for you? Oh, geez. Uh, you know, you went down there with the, it was the same kid in the neighborhood that was the last to get picked on the team, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's amazing. I, you know, you talk about those little balls, so we, we bring them back home. And then, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood where everybody lived in a row home. So those yards were short or small and, and tight. But we have an area in the yard where, you know, we built our own soccer goal out of wood. And the net was an old somebody's old sheet that you would nail the – the uh, uh, sheet to the, the wood, and then here, here you have your smaller indoor goal. And picnic tables were the boards, and, um, you know, we used to do that every day, you know, until that ball popped or went into the yard where the had the dog that would, would pop a hole in it, you know. But right, right, right. Creating. The old lady that wouldn't give it back, yeah. that, was, that was a big one. If In my neighborhood, there was – her last name was Turkin. Miss Turkin, if the ball wouldn't miss Turkin's yard, you're screwed. She's not giving it back. She'd fight you <laughs> off with a broom. We had that. We had the, the the house with the dog was named Sid, right? So he would you never get that ball back. And then we would have a lady, uh, Miss Estelle or something like that. She would come out in her yard with the hose, and we would <laughs> we in her yard. We were in the alleyway outside her yard, but she had these real nice rose bushes, and she didn't want the ball going in there and smashing her rose. But so she'd come out and squirt her, her flowers down, and then in in the hose into the uh, alleyway. It's funny that we're talking about this because. Even though this goes back to, you know, the early 80s, mid-80s, whatever it was, like, that's what kids are experiencing now with all this stuff. They're yeah. figuring out, like, how to train themselves and how to play themselves, how to be creative and build things in the yard to help them, whether it's a wall or a goal or whatever it is. It's just funny how things come full circle, whereas, you know, two years ago, if you're not dragging the kid to practice, very few kids would take that initiative. I'll say this, you know, the club I'm with uh, right now, coaching with the union, you know, they're doing the daily training sessions. Some are live, some are taped, and I know uh, Celtic and Pipeline, they're doing that, working with, with a group that does this. So I think the kids, if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, every day, getting a half hour, hour in, a lot of the technical work's really going to benefit them, you know, with the yeah. They're probably getting in more touches if, you know, they were going to school and, and, and even training two times a week. Um, so, you know, again, like you said, being creative, it's a lot of people in their basements are moving furniture around and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, again, hopefully they're taking advantage of it and uh, getting creative. So one of the things I think is neat about your playing career is, you, you, yeah, you played for Little Flower. And then, yeah, you went to Curly. You made varsity, I think, as a sophomore, if, if memory serves. Um, but where you blossomed as a player probably – wasn't even on a soccer field. It was on, on the courts at Elmley Playground. Tell me about that atmosphere. Well, you know, as far as soccer-wise, I think you could characterize me as maybe a little late bloomer in terms of physically, you know, and uh, 
you know, I think it's a, you know, playing for a little flower, you know, I was always one of the better players and um, going into high school about, you know, sophomore year, I, I did make the varsity, but I was a small guy, didn't play a whole lot. And junior year, I was, I was pretty average, you know, but I was a soccer right. cat, always playing all the time. And then between the junior and senior year, I had a nice growth spurt. And that even continued into the first two, three years of college. You know, I got bigger and stronger, but you know, all the things that I did, I, I always played. And that's what I tell my kids all the time, the kids I coach, I was always playing. You know, things weren't, you know, structured. I didn't have the, the level of practices that, you know, we're able to give the teams we coach now in terms of, you know, how it's uh, organized. Um, and the fields they play on are really nice most of the time. But uh, I was always playing. I was playing for five different indoor teams. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the courts. That was a huge part of our development. You know, we played up Elmley Playground. We, we played in our back alley with street cones, you know, if you hit the cone. But uh, when summertime came, I, it was, you know, especially when I was at a certain age, we were going up there every day to play. Every mm -hmm. day to play for three and four hours. And, and, and it wasn't always the highest level, but you had every kid in the neighborhood. And, you know, some were good and some weren't so good, but all the kids played. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun, but it was also, you know, just touches and touches and touches. And there was some compete up there as well, you know. You yeah. used to the kid, you know, that, that lived nearby that could always, because he always practiced hitting it between the posts, he could hit it between those posts from anywhere on the court, you know. So you know, There was a guy up there that I, I remember, he, he probably wouldn't have played on a club or anything like that, but if you put him on Elmley Playground, you wanted him on his team, on the team because he could bank the ball off the walls and get it between the posts. His name was Jimmy Darby, I think. Yeah, I remember Jimmy, yeah. He, he was unreal at it, Adam. It was it, it was crazy. Like, he'd be on his half of the field, two guys on his back, and he'd bank the ball off the wall and it would go in. It was it was crazy. He had it down to a science, huh? But, but you, if had you, to, you had to watch over there near, near, near the wall because there was dirt. And whenever it would rain, that dirt would kind of come out on the courts. It was a slippery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Like, walk us through some of the guys that you played with. Because I remember going there, and there were times when it was on, and people were there. It was, cra it was great. It was, it was like a who's who. And so, so tell us about some of the guys you, you played with at Elmley. Uh, you know, it was obviously a lot of the kids from the neighborhood, maybe guys that didn't go on and play even in high school and college. But, uh, you know, it was only my neighbor, Randy Rizet. I played with him all the time. Uh, you know, you'd be lucky if you got up there. Some of the older guys like Dan Rose were playing. Yeah. And that game, Jason Dieter was always up there. I remember Franco Pastore, he was a little kid. You know, he was younger. You know, right. Up there, geez, you'd have a couple of girls that were pretty good players in the neighborhood. they jump into games. Um, uh, Tom Milcar, I could remember him. You know, yeah. Jimmy Darby. Uh, you just had a time. And then, and then as you got older and you were in those high school years and guys could drive, then all of a sudden guys were driving in. And you'd play, you know, it, it wasn't lighted except where they had the little building there that had one light that came off of it. Right, right, right. And that would kind of shine onto the court a little bit, but you'd play out there, you know, into, you know, eight, nine o'clock at night. Yeah. I mean, it was it, it was a really neat atmosphere. And, and you look at the success, a lot of the – kids had that, that played there and went on to play. I mean, there was a, there was a lot of good guys that grew up in that neighborhood that went on to play, you know, college soccer. It, it, it's fantastic. And in fact, like uh, Tony, uh, the, the Masons, you had Chris yeah, Mason, Steve Mason, Mason Chris, Tony Mason. To play up there, yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, it was just, it, it was like a thing. If you got up there and it was a good day, you, know, you better bring your boots. Definitely probably a great, you know, way to develop into, being the player that you became. 
And then so from from your playing career, obviously you went on to play with the Spirit, the Blast. Uh, like, how do you how did that transition into coaching become? Like, how did that materialize? I think you know I, I got the I was thirty years old and uh, uh, my wife Teresa was pregnant with our, our first son Ben and I started getting scared you know you know financially I was doing okay to get by and, and uh, you know she was working as well but then you start you know with that baby going away you start looking hey what am I going to be doing five years from now and uh, you know I, I still you know soccer's been a big part of my life still is and and I knew that I uh, had wanted to continue doing something and, and certainly coaching was. Uh, a way to do that, and I was blessed that uh, you know I actually took over a curly for Pep Perella, who had uh, uh, stepped back um, after an unbelievable career here. And uh, my first year at curly, I was actually teaching and coaching, and uh, you know that was a way to continue on. And uh, uh, after my first year here, actually uh, position that I'm currently in uh, in uh, fundraising, vice president for development, uh, opened up, and I've been doing that for the last 19 years. And at the same time able to continue to coach at the high school level which has been great and then you know my sons started getting old enough to play and you know i've always coached them through the uh years as well Very yeah, cool. the, there's nothing like that i mean being able to be around your kids as long as you feel like you know i always wanted to evaluate you know my performance around my kids and make sure hey look you know i'm not favoring them or babying them or anything like that and it's very hard to separate from the coach and, and father role but um, you know, if, as long as you're happy with, with that. And obviously you've been and your, your kids have all developed, um, except for obviously your, your middle one who, who really likes to, likes hockey and wants to excel in that. But uh, you didn't sell him on the soccer idea, but, uh, but well, he's still hey, a good player though. Hey, well, I shouldn't reveal this, but there's still a chance he might make his debut next year. We'll Ooh, see. Okay. If we can get a season in. All right, all right. There's no special announcement yet, but we'll see. <laughs> well, look, if he started off in hockey and he's, he makes his debut, are you talking about a curly? I would love to – this is what I want to see. First game, he's wearing gloves. He throws them down, starts squaring them up, <laughs> sir, give him the business. Like the Hanson brothers. That's what curly needs, the Hanson brothers. <laughs> Oh man! I can, well, hey, not anytime soon. They're gonna have the latex on the mask. You're gonna have to play with masks yes. first, right? <laughs> They're gonna be playing in a bubble. But so, so bear with with uh, your you, you've coached your sons. You, you you started your own thing, and I think this is one of the coolest stories uh, in local soccer. You started Fuster Soccer Club, which not affiliated with any of these bigger clubs. You stayed your own little island. Tell us a little bit about that and the success that you had. Uh, Jason, you know, I was fortunate to win a couple of national championships coaching incredible uh, kids with uh, Celtic. But probably, you know, if you ask me what was my uh, greatest accomplishment as a coach, it would probably be, you know, the Fuster team at under 15 making it to the national final. Unfortunately, we lost. But you know, um, my son had played his first year at five years old with the school team, St. Joe's Fullerton, and, and did the, you know, the rec soccer there, you know, it's in-house, CYO league. And then he was seven years old, and I said, you know what, it's time to, let, let's take this to the next level. And, and there were super clubs around as well. But, I, you know, I had worked at Curly. I said, well, you know what, we got a field here we can use. we got a gym we can go in and use in the winter. So I wasn't anti-club by any stretch, but I thought, well, why are we going to, you know, pay these fees to, to, to be involved right. in the problem. We could do it at Curly. 
And what we did was we had the number of players. Here's our expenses. We split it by the number of players and boom. So we were probably, you know, 800 to $1,000 less, you know, a year than you would, you know, playing somewhere else. And there was no tryouts. Um, there was a, a Danny Rose who I grew up playing with, right? He had a son my age and said, hey, Dan, bring your kid out. Uh, Jeff Knapp, who was a year behind me at Curly, right. you know, he, uh, uh, I knew him through my Curly days and he lived in the neighborhood down the street and he had a kid that was, I could bring him out. Uh, Chris Burton, who I played slow pitch softball with, he had a kid my son's age and was playing with Perry Hall Whitemarsh. So it was one of these all calls and guess what? Bring your friend too, you know? And that's how we started, you know? We, we got two or three kids that they played together, a guy I played softball, you know, so um, we trained them. There, there, there wasn't a tryout. We, we got a couple other players along the way, and uh, we, we never made any cuts. And, you know, to me, that's development in its pure sense. You know, here's the kids I was dealt. And uh, we, uh, Coach Dan, uh, Dan Rose uh, worked with me. Uh, was, you know, we were co-coaches. I wouldn't, you know, uh, take the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, all the credit for that. It was me and him together. And even Steve Mason, who helped me coach at Curly for 20 years, he was involved with the team. It was us three, and uh, you know we worked out. You know, trained. You know, pretty much year round. We had kids playing other sports, and uh, you know, we just uh, again developed them. And, and the funniest thing I, I would say, like about the team, we weren't very athletic. We weren't very big. We weren't very uh, fast. But you know, they were all technically sound. They could do things with both feet. And there's something to be said about chemistry. Even oh. at those ages, kids played together. And Huge. One of the things we did, and, and this was, you know, look, it was my first uh, getting into coaching. You know, I coached Curly for a number of years, obviously, but coaching seven and eight-year-old kids, this was new to me as well. And I said, you know what, he, Adam, you know, if we went up to uh, Emily Playground or we went up to uh, Honey Go to play on the turf fields, and it was all guys that had played soccer before, and we were playing 66, you wouldn't say, hey, I'm playing center forward. Adam, you're playing left back or whatever. No, we'd just go out there and we would play. So when we started out playing the 77, all right, all we did was, you know, we didn't give the kids positions. The only time they were in positions when we kicked off, right? So we kicked off, we did the three and three and a goalkeeper, right? We right. Kids, they rotated all the time. So, you know, we score a goal, right? They would run back and whoever got back to whatever position, that's what they played. <laughs> and it was never keeping three guys in the back. And, you know, initially, you know, we gave up goals all the time because the other team had two guys staying up top. And we right. had all six guys. Right, right, right. Right? But by doing this, you know, there was never a kid who was always playing on the left side of the field or the right side of the field or always playing up top. They were playing everywhere. And you know what was amazing? When we got to the point where, you know, you had to start, you know, figuring on positions, it was really already answered for it. There was kids that gravitated to, yeah, you know, maybe didn't have, you know, didn't get up and back or what, you know, um, kids could play on both sides of the field. So, it really worked out. We added a couple of kids when we went to the 11 v 11. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we were successful. And it looked like we were getting to the point, I mentioned that under 15 year, it looked like we were getting to the point where maybe we were getting passed by a little bit because all these other clubs around were always adding players, getting rid of players, adding players. And, you know, that's the reality of it. You know, everybody's looking to get, get stronger where we had that same team. And then, boom, we hit the, uh, you know, the regional and there were several teams that had, you know, started to get our number a little bit, and we just started clicking, and, and we won our regional, and uh, to, again, we had to do it the, the hard way, won the state cup, went through the regional, and then to the national, and made it to the final loss to Sporting KC, and this was even at a time where 
you know, it wasn't watered down as much with the academy, you know, type thing. We were playing their team, which was going to be their U16 academy team the next year. Right. It it just shows you something. There's something to, you know, taking a group development, having that chemistry. Um, We never relied from day one. We never relied on that kid that was bigger, stronger, faster, that we always needed to score goals. So he would hang up and kick it to him. So we had had to play. And everybody always knew, you know, that we moved the ball well. You know, again, possessing the ball doesn't mean you're a great team, but we moved the ball well and, and, and could possess it. And that could, you know, offset some of the, uh, you know, athleticism that we lacked or playing against the kids that were bigger, stronger, faster. So seeing like how, you know, you came through with that club and just see the evolution of club. I don't, what you did is probably an anomaly that probably will not be replicated anytime soon, just because of how they reached the success level and doing it under an independent, you know, club or whatever. I think you did have towards the end there, you might've had a couple other teams in there, but none that competed at the same level as your future, you know, like you had some other future teams, but not of the level of your team. But, um, you know, in today's world, it's much, much different. And, you know, we, we've been talking about this whole development academy fizzling out. Um, and, you know, you were right in the crosshairs as I was, as Coach, Coach Pete was, where we were all coaching club when this thing started. And so we've kind of been around it since its inception. And then we really, you know, and all three of us being high school coaches, it's really impacted us over the last few years, especially once the the high school sit-out mandate kind of got in the way. And so what are your thoughts on, you know, the academy? Was it a failure? Was it not a failure? I mean, what, do you, what is your take on it? Well, you know what? It may, may be a little bit different or surprising to, to, to most being a high school coach, but I think there should be an academy. And I think as it shakes out now that it, it should be uh, not pay-to-play. And when it's not pay-to-play, then, and MLS, MLS teams are going to be uh, – uh, foot in the bills, then I think there's a guarantee that you're going to have the best players because they're not right. paid for, you know, to, to have the second or third best player out there. So I think the numbers is going to be 26, 30 or whatever. I think that's the right number. I think the problem was we had this academy thing that you had 80 to 90 teams that were calling themselves elite. You had rosters of 25 and, and 30 players and you're telling people not to play high school on top of that. And I just don't think it, it, it works. I think if they would have never got rid of the whole high school team, I think it would still be going on. Uh, I really do. I think the need players make decisions. I, I know that the academy, you know, was the highest level playing. There's something with playing with the best players and against the best players, right, that makes you better, no doubt, and much higher level than high school. And for the most part, much higher level than the U.S., Y.S., and all that. Now, my problem is the perception was if you weren't doing that, you know, you know part of that marketing to play academy was – you're not playing the cab, you're not going to be seen. And, you know, yeah. that scare tactic. And that was so untrue. And there were still good high school teams out there and still good regular, what I call regular club teams out there, right? And that Celtic team that I coached, all right, and that was after that mandate went out. You know, out there was 18 kids. We were a national champion on the uh, USYS side. And they ended up being, I, I think, uh, 16 of the 18 went on to play in college. It was like 14 of the 18 or 19 went and played Division One. So, um, you know, I don't know what to tell you that, you know, that there's other ways to, to, to get there. And I think that's where the mistake was. But there, are, there should be a league for the best of the best. But who are those kids, right? 
if you're the you know on a 25 or 30 man roster you're playing 10 minutes a half or you're only playing against the weaker teams you know i know you're getting better from the practices but how are you gonna get better that way and you know there was also stuff that came out that you know we're practicing four days a week well i think as it began a lot of them weren't doing that i i think there was the uh you know, mandate your practice plan's got to be turned in before every practice. And there was some real guidelines to this thing. And I think by the end, none of that stuff was happening. And right. if you're a non-MLS team, and even some of them, you know, that pay-to-play got very expensive. So I was never anti-academy. And I think, you know, again, the level, but it's got to be done right. You know, Bear, and you brought up a great point because the, the one thing, the one thing that bothered me the most about the development academy is that they marketed it to players and and the way they market it was if you're not with us you've thrown away your future and 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 so you look at it now and those players believe that they bought into that they held on to that and they're going academy and they've sacrificed time money teammates Teams, in some cases, gave up their high school. And if you're in the middle of it now, for what? Then they pull the plug. So, and by the way, shame on the U.S. Development Academy, because you know how people found out? They found out through Twitter before the announcement was made. So they obviously leaked it out. That leak got passed around. So if you're a player on the girls' side or boys' side on the Development Academy, you're getting this through social media without having any previous knowledge of it. All you know is soccer's canceled because there's a pandemic. And then all of a sudden your league is canceled and your team has been maybe dismantled, maybe not. You know, that's, that's gotta be hard. Yeah. I think you saw the early signs of that last year, right before the season when none of these teams knew, but they split, you know, the groups up. So there was the Academy teams and then some of the other, stronger teams in it and then academy teams yeah, and then there was a second division still academy but it was the teams maybe right uh, not not as strong and they found out at the last minute yeah so you had academy teams and then underneath that you had academy teams you know and and i look i believe that that it could work i i look at some players uh that that, that i know that are up in philadelphia right now uh, playing for the union, well, probably not right now, right now, but they play for the union that that have, that do a tremendous, they, they just gotten tremendously better and they were good to begin with. Um, so yeah, it, it can work, but um, tough, Fair, t- tough yeah. call to give up as much as they ask you to give up. Well, you know, one, one last comment with that. And here's what I think, and you guys could probably, uh, I think you would agree with this, that within the last 10 years, things have changed so much. So I think 10 years ago, whether it was playing for the Casamia Bays, who were a, a dynasty, or mm-hmm. going with the Celtic teams, or down in Potomac, or Bethesda, you know, and then the academy came along, hey, I got to play for the highest level, and whatever. I think the goal was always, I'm going to do all that, and the, and the, the, the carrot at the end was that Division One scholarship. Right. But now, there's a real change in that, where that carrot now, for a lot of kids, is playing professional, and because mm-hmm. you have the MLSO, MLS, bigger and stronger, and then you got the USL, which is a high, pretty high level. And yeah, for sure. And yeah. guys can go out there and they can make enough to live off of. And, you know, at least they give it a shot to see if they can go to the MLS level, right? So now kids, I think really are, you know, the goal is to play professionally. Yeah, I always wanted to play professionally, but, you know, it's, it, it's the goal was to get that scholarship, you know, or, and, you know, right. 
want it or not, you know, people chase around the, the investment of it's going to pay off because I'm going to get a scholarship. And we all know how hard that is. But I think now kids are looking to play professionally. So they're going and right out of high school, you know, they're signing with a USL team. All right. And yeah. so I think that's, the, that's the change. And I think for kids to do that, then they probably have to be together somewhere where they're playing against the best of the best. They're training more than two or three times a week. All right. They're, they're, you know, maybe they're, they, they are somewhere where they, they're living there and they're going to school there and all that. But again, it's got to be done right. They can't be flipping the tab because again, then it starts looking like money grabs again. So I think there's a place for it. It's just got to be done, done right. It's funny you say that. I wanted to get your thoughts on something. The U S men's national team, total disaster. The Academy, you know, which was, was supposed to be this big development monster that's going to propel us into the future. And, and, and you've seen where that's gone. If they, if they take Coach Barry Stitz tomorrow and put you in the driver's seat of changing U.S. youth soccer, men's academy, so forth and so on, what do you do? Well, I, I start that by saying it's kind of mind-boggling how – you know, you take this and you look back 20 years ago and, and 25 years ago and, and you say that we're no better for, you know, I mean, maybe technically we are, maybe the brand of soccer might look a little prettier, but result-based that we're not, uh, you know, where we were even. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a silver bullet answer. I, I, I don't think, you know, get rid of high school soccer because kids are taking a step back for the two and a half months they're playing without really seeing the benefits of it too. You know, right. Um, but to answer your question, I don't know. That that's a tough. That that's a tough answer. I, I, I do think there's a spot for the uh, academy. I think it's got to be done the right way. I think you have to have a system in place where you know kids don't think that's the only way though, and you can't forget about the rest of the country because you know some people don't want their kid going off at 14 years old or 15 years old and living somewhere. You know, if if they can't commute back and forth to that MLS academy team. You know, so I think you got to make it where kids have the opportunities. If they want to do that, they can do that. But if they don't want to do that, right, and they want to have a normal life, then you got to find ways to, for those kids to continue to develop. Years ago, I, I don't know that ODP was the answer. I mean, that's been, that's, that's looked at now as like the fifth or sixth, you know, way to develop, you know what I mean? It really stays, but you need something in place. And I don't think it's Bradenton for the top 20 kids or whatever, but you have to have something in place that's, you know, that you're looking at kids from these areas and, and they have the opportunity to train with better kids. Not, it doesn't have to be every day and they got to move and relocate, but they get these opportunities to show what they have. You just brought up something interesting. ODP, when we were younger, was not pay to play. ODP was Olympic Development Program and, and it was actually funded I want to say it was from U.S. soccer, but it might have been through the U.S. It might have been through the Olympic team. I have no idea. But that was fully funded. When that went to pay to play, the the quality obviously because you know now you're you're accepting people with money that maybe don't belong, and you also have instead of one team at an age group, you have four. If we went back to that, do you think that would help? Again, if it's done the right way, um, you know, if I'm playing for my club team and we're, or, or my academy team, right, and we're national champions or, or certainly in the top 10% and I'm going and playing ODP and my club team's better than my ODP team, 
it, it's not going to work. Again, right, right. It's going to work. It can't be pay to play, right? You got, you know, and listen, back to the pay to play. The MLS teams, right, can afford, not saying can afford, it's a big price tag no matter what, but when they cover the expense of these kids playing, they're, you know, thing they're looking for is, hey, here's a kid that can eventually play for us, or maybe we can sell them at some point if, right. if that happens. Well, if you're a regular club, or say for Baltimore Armor, for example, it's got to be pay to play, right? If your kid's taking dance lessons, you're paying for them to get dance, you know? Right, so right, right. When you do that, that's got to be the case. But uh, um, I guess getting back to what we were originally talking about, I think ODP can work. Again, you know, if you want to get the best players, everybody's got to be able to afford it. you got to have good coaches in place. And then for picking the state teams, you know, you should go then to the regional thing where you're playing Virginia and whatever. Yeah. And then if your team won that, you know, you would go to Nationals and play the Final Four. But within that regional thing, you had coaches there that were evaluating. You know, again, you got bad states out there too. But the level's going to be lower. But you had coaches out there that were evaluating kids and then they were picking the region team from that. Yeah. I think, what was it like? A, what was it called? The soccer festival? Or yes. Like that, where you would it's have exactly what it was. the regional teams playing each other. And then sometimes pick from that, they'd go play in the Pan Am games or something like that. So that's not a bad way to identify kids, but you just got to make sure. Because if you remember, Pete, it was always like, you know, all the kids that made those ODP teams a lot of times were kids that played down in Potomac and Bethesda and the Baltimore kids, you know, whether that was true or not, but that was the perception. It was almost like, the kids from Baltimore not going and playing basketball at Maryland because right. it happened from a Baltimore kid at one point. But it, you know that that was the feel you got. It was us and them. Right, okay. and it, that was that was a that was a thing. Mm-hmm. So. Now you, uh, how do you feel like, you know, given the situation with this this coronavirus and all this? I mean, it's it's made a huge impact on every industry. But um, as far as like soccer specifically. How has this impacted you, both club and high school? Um, for those that don't know, you run, you know, a, a very good-sized camp in the summer, and, you know, you have a lot of things that go on outside of just during in-season, and obviously working with the club all the way up until June or whatever it is that your age group stops. Uh, I guess it would depend on how far they would get in the, the tournaments and things like that, but how has this thing really impacted you as a coach and, and your teams? I mean, I think that remains to be seen. You know, I'm hoping that, you know, things are uh, get back to closer to normal or sooner than later. Um, uh, but everything's a trickle-down effect. So, you know, uh, you, you can't have the summer camps. And some of the, the money we, we make at the summer camps is used to the program. Well, one year of that, we, we can get by and make things work and things like that. But if people are out of work longer, then you start looking at maybe some of the families and some of these players can't afford a private school anymore. Right. So what 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 happens then? And uh, you know that's a bigger worry. You know, in terms of forget about the soccer part, but you know that you want families still to be able to 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 afford the things that you know they, they believed in for a good number of years and investment they made in their in, in their kids and in these schools. So sure, we'll see. And then you know again, if people can't afford to play, pay to play club ball because. They're out of work and, and things like that. Let's face it, it it's not cheap to, to, to do that. And you know what? Like I said before about the, you know, your kid taking dance lessons or playing the piano. You know, I, I think it's okay to have a pay-to-play system in place. You don't always need to follow or volunteer in this time, right? It's just right. about giving people what they're paying for. And um, I think in so many cases, 
you don't have that. And that's not an Baltimore thing. I mean, that's across the board and that's not just a soccer thing. That's in other sports. And it could be in the dance and the, 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 the piano lessons as well. You just got to make it worth it. For people. Got it. Got it. Hey, I got one last question. I'm looking behind you. There's a Jersey on the wall. Yes. It appears to be a Fila jersey, but I can't quite tell. Is that a Fila jersey? Let me see if I can uh, tilt the thing up. That is. so funny. A Fila jersey. First of all, I know why you framed it, because <laughs> people don't believe jersey. that exists. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the story behind that. So I take over the job at Curly. Right. When Pep stepped down. And uh, I also was uh, working at the school, and I had my office. And... Uh, you know, I've played soccer for the last eight years. I don't have anything for the walls, and I got these bare walls. So um, I took one of the leftover jerseys, got it framed, hung it up in my office. It's still uh, there after even moving offices. But Joe Kojel, who was one of my uh, – Great guy. I, you know, I was at Towson. Joe played at Loyola. was an unbelievable player. Well, I played uh, right when I started with the Spirit. I think the first two or three years with Joe, with the Spirit, great teammate, great player. Um, you know, come full circle, I'm – taking a job at Curly, uh, teaching and raising money for the school. He's one of the uh, a sales guy for Fila when they got into soccer yep. for a couple of years. So wow. I'm going to, you know, again, he's a buddy of mine. I'm going to go with Fila. So we had that maybe my first year or two. And then I'm an Adidas guy, you know. And yeah, yeah. That. And then a few years ago, you know, this Under Armour thing and the school has a, a deal with uh, school-wide. So now we're with Under Armour. But I saw those little little uh, little slots on the side, and I'm like, that's that's old school Fila right there, my friend. That's hey, a Fila had its prime, man. It was it was big for a stretch of maybe three four years. It had a window where it was it was yeah. huge. I mean, balls, gear, everything they had. Hey, do you think, remember what we wore at Curly? Um, we had Union Jack. No, oh, you did. Yeah, I did. I know. Behind me, but no, originally. The uh, Peter Green jersey. Ah, Peter uh, Green. Wow, yeah, you know what, you're right. We were in a championship game. Remember you put the collar? The collar, the, uh, Adam, our collars were this big. <laughs> I put my collar up, I looked like a dog that can't scratch himself. You know what I mean? It was like, it was, oh, classic. Hey, you would go right from the soccer field to the disco, right? You know what I mean? Our kids now for club ball, they get new uniforms every two years at least, sometimes every year. At Curly, we get them every other year. I mean, for that, I think the jersey I wore, you know, I wore it all four or three of the four years. And I think six years before that, they were wearing them. So right. they had like a 10-year lifespan. <laughs> One more thing. Yeah, yeah. And then you pass that. So if you're on JV, you're wearing 20-year-old stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, – one year, and by the way, this was – Barry kind of was one of the guys that carried us uh, this year. It was uh, Barry, Dave Butka, Jason Dieter, but our coach was Mario Shilapoti. Mario, Hall of Fame player, great guy, was a teacher at the school, came back to coach, and somehow or another he got sold on the idea – of red and white striped socks. <laughs> you remember those socks? Yeah. And we wore so red and white the, the hoops. hoops. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember it, guys, you like people used to say stuff about our socks. Da, da, da. And then we come out and win. It was it was very cool. It was, it was pretty neat. It was a good thing. That's I'm all I got. I'm just gonna sit here for another ten minutes. <laughs> So, hey, Barry, thank you very much for your time, man. That was 
Fantastic. Your insight is is so valuable and appreciated. I appreciate you coming out with us. Thanks, thanks for having me. I love talking soccer. Wish we could have did it in person in the uh, studio, but uh, glad we uh, had the time to talk today. Yeah, thanks so much, Coach. Appreciate you making the time for us today. Take care, guys. All See right. You, buddy. That is our special guest, Barry Stitz. I am the coach, Pete Eibner. That is the co-coach, Adam Mizell. We are off the crossbar. We are out. <laughs>